anybody who reads the Lord of the Rings is nudged Christwards, shall we say, from wherever they are. So that is a very powerful evangelical weapon in itself. The, the Catholic dimension in the Lord of the Rings is, is there, subsumed within the story. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today I'm joined by uh, Joseph Pierce, uh, author, colleague, you know, one of our uh, writer-in-residences in the early days of Ave Maria University and returning this semester to teach a course uh, with us. Uh, so we're just delighted to have you here, Joseph. It's wonderful to be back, so thanks for having me. Great. And I'm excited today to talk about The Lord of the Rings and uh, Tolkien's uh, work, um, his life, right? This, this great story. And uh, you've, you've written a whole book on, right? Tolkien, man and myth, a literary life, diving into both Tolkien's life as well as uh, the Lord of the Rings and, and helping readers to understand it. So maybe, you know, to begin with uh, just a, a couple big questions, uh, could you say a word about, you know, why is Lord of the Rings such a popular book? It's really shocking. It is. It's a sh shocking, astonishing, surprising. Um, actually, the motivation for writing that book, uh, Tolkien Man and Myth, was the response of the literati, so-called literati in England, mm -hmm. um, to the emergence of The Lord of the Rings as the most popular book of the 20th century in a number of national opinion polls, one by the, uh, the TV channels and books uh, selling chains. Um, and the literati responded, you know, one of them said, this just shows the folly of teaching people to read. Um, wow. That's how negative wow. they were. And it was clear to me these people never even read the book. So they'd formed a judgment based upon a, a presumption mm -hmm. uh, and, and dismissed it accordingly. So I thought, well, I want to defend Tolkien. I want to defend the Lord of the Rings. I also want to expose the ignorance of these people mm -hmm. that don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And of course, if they did know what they were talking about, they would be probably even more horrified because the Lord of the Rings is a profoundly Catholic work. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, Tolkien said, and I'm quoting him word for word here, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously at first, consciously in the revision. Well, that's a that's that's quite a big um, that's a big place to leave us on. So, how now? It's the right most was at least in a lot of polls was one of the most pop the most popular book right in the 20th century. Yes, and uh, in fact, there were, there were other polls that it was voted the most popular book of all time in, in okay. other polls, ahead of Dickens yes. and, oh, wow. and, and so, Jane Austen. So clearly, uh, many people love the story uh, and do not see it in any sense uh, religious or Catholic work. Uh, so how would, you, how would you answer that? Like, how can that be that people can so love a book that without being religious or Catholic, which Tolkien said was unconsciously at first and then consciously in the revision, of course, a religious and Catholic work. Well, it's subtle, uh, absolutely mm -hmm. subtle. And if someone's ignorant, they will not uh, get the su subtlety of it. Mm -hmm. But the, the f first thing I would say, so yes, it doesn't preach. No, 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 no literature should ever preach. It, it, it destroys the, the art of the storytelling if you preach. But anybody who reads The Lord of the Rings is nudged closer to Christ. It's not, you're not going to leapfrog from being an atheist, probably, <laughs> being an atheist to being a Catholic by reading The Lord of the Rings, but you'll be moved away from your atheism towards Catholicism. So anybody who reads The Lord of the Rings is being nudged 
Christwards, shall we say, from wherever they are. So that is a very powerful evangelical weapon in itself. But see, but the, the, the Catholic dimension in the Lord of the Rings is, 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 is there subsumed within the story. Now, what is the ring? The date the ring's destroyed, the date, the date that a fellowship leave Rivendell. These are all ways in which Christ embeds the Christian liturgical year into so the what, story. What are some of those dates for, you know, for listeners? Yeah, well, the most important thing we need to know if we want to unpack the mm-hmm. deep theological significance of the Lord of the Rings is the date on which the ring is destroyed. Mm. So with, with, with the ring is destroyed on March the 25th. Now, for non-Christian readers, that's a, that's a date that means nothing, right? But for Christians, that's, that's the, the Annunciation. And really, the Annunciation is a more important feast day than Christmas, right? Because life begins at conception and not at birth. So God becomes man, the word is made flesh on March the 25th, not December the 25th. So the Annunciation is when the angel Gabriel um, right, makes the Annunciation to Mary. Mary says, right, let it be done to me according to your word. And then Jesus is like the word is incarnate in her. Right? Word becomes so that's flesh, when, yeah. That's the conception. That's why we celebrate it March 25th. And then December 25th, nine months later, we celebrate the nativity of Christ. Right. So, so basically, if you take the, uh, and also, but the other important thing is that the medi- early church and medieval church believed that the crucifixion also happened on March the 25th. Most people oh, don't wow. know that because, mm-hmm. you know, Good Friday is a movable feast. We don't assign any particular date to it okay. because it's not on the same date every year. But the historical event, of course, happened on one particular specific date. Mm-hmm. And the early church and, and the medieval church believed that that was March the 25th. So this one date is the mm-hmm. most significant date in the year from a yeah. Christian understanding mm-hmm. of things. It's, it's when the word becomes flesh, but also when Christ dies for us on the cross, which taken together with the resurrection is our redemption. Mm. So what's destroyed by that? It's the power of sin, right? Uh, uh, and uh, what is uh, original sin? It's the one sin to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. What uh, is so the, slow down here because yeah. that went really fast there. And um, <laughs> so you're suggesting the ring is somehow original sin? Would you ex- just expand that, you know, for our listeners? And, and, and for me, I think it's a fascinating yeah, so what, what Tolkien's doing, and he's a medievalist, so he's using allegorical techniques, for instance, that the Beowulf poet use, uses, the Seguin and the Green uh, Knight poet uses, that um, Dante uses, right? That, that the whole that the divine comedy happens over the triduum, right? Begins on Holy Thursday and ends on Easter, uh, during the octave of Easter. So mm-hmm. this is a technique to actually embed deep theological significance by connecting it to the, the liturgical year. So March the 25th is the date of the Annunciation out of the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. That, that, together with the reservation, destroys the power of sin. The ring, the power of the ring is destroyed on that date. So there's, yes. therefore, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a synonymous connection yeah. between the one ring and the one sin. You know, the one ring to rule them all in the darkness bind them, the one sin to rule them all in the darkness bind them. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that, then the rest of it begins to unpack itself. You can see the power of the ring. Putting the ring on is the act of sin. And when you put the ring on, you excommunicate yourself from the good world that God made. You become invisible. But you become more visible than ever to Sauron because you've entered his world. You've entered his dominion. And if you put the ring on habitually, you golemize yourself. You shrivel. You shrink. You become the, 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 the wreck of the good hobbit you were meant to be and become this addicted wretch. So, you know, all, so you see the, the, the impact of sin on the psyche 
uh, is you know, when you yeah. become addicted so to Sin the power of the ring. Has, and the ring, it seems like, I mean, how would you, how does the ring, the ring always seems attractive, right? Um, so say more about that because it seems like, right, people always want the ring. They call it their precious. Um, how could we call sin our precious? Well, the, one of the buzzwords of our modern culture is self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. The ring uh, offers us self-empowerment where we ha- will have more power than everybody else. We can do what we like. We become invisible. We have powers no one else has. That's enticing, mm-hmm. right? The, 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 but the, there's a price that, that comes to self-empowerment, which ultimately is self-degradation, right? We golemize ourselves. We actually become a slave to the power that we've that we've uh, given ourselves to. So that, mm-hmm. that's that's the power of 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 sin to destroy. So the power of the ring is the power of sin. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, we allows us to do what we like, and that sounds great. But there is there are consequences to that. Ultimately, slavery. We become mm-hmm. slaves to the evil that we've mm-hmm. that we've sought to. We, we've sought, we've sought to empower ourselves with evil. We actually become uh, slaves. In other words, we lose all power to its power because it is more powerful than we are. Mm-hmm. So in part then, if we want to think about maybe some of the theological implications of this, one would be that, right, I I think I remember hearing, I don't know if this was an older priest talking to a younger priest who was going to start hearing confessions. uh, And I think he said something like, you know, don't worry, don't worry, son. You know, like the thing about original sin is it's not very original, right? You know, um, right, it tends to repeat itself. Uh, But it's also interesting that, like why does the why does the tradition why does the church tell us about original sin the initial sin of maybe even of especially of Adam and Eve this desire for knowledge on our own right, right. not knowledge that's derivative that's received from uh, from God and in a way it's kind of shocking that every single sin be it you know I don't know you know stealing or uh, you know or adultery or uh, you know, I mean, just anyway, countless uh, uh, sins are all that, yep. right? That they, they, they in a way they seem all unique, they seem all individual, but they have a common root. Uh, and, you know, that's something I think that's really kind of powerful when we begin to see that original sin isn't, so to speak, something that happened in the past. It's something that's happening in us. Yes. And we begin to see it's the story of our lives yep. that my story of my life is a consistent desire to somehow, right? It's this, it's this egocentric attempt to recreate the world around my wishes. And, and in that sense, right, that, and, and one of the things that's, so let's just shift for a moment, then how does, you know, uh, creating this incredible story uh, help us see these problems? So, you know, maybe could you talk about a couple of characters who, uh, want to use the ring and you know it, it maybe you know you can uh, you, you can talk about whatever you want but you obviously have the great character of Gollum who uh, loves the ring uh, the character of Boromir kind of a great man who wants to use the ring to do good apparently to free his city uh, and then also maybe the character of Saruman um, and I know uh, who's a uh, right one of the the wizard the great wizard who who falls somehow, but it, it's not entirely clear, you know, what his wishes are. It seems to be kind of a wish for power. But anyway, maybe, you know, just talk a little bit about those different characters and uh, how it is that they somehow maybe justify the use of the ring. Yeah, so 
It's a great question, and I, I'll begin with the first person you mentioned, Boromir. Okay. Now, the key the key thing about Boromir is he is actually the one who represents us. Mm. Uh, he's the everyman figure, and I'll explain that. And it's very simple. We, we derive this, you know, all literary meaning has to have, be rooted in the literal meaning, okay? Mm-hmm. So the Fellowship of the Ring, right, it has four hobbits, one wizard, one king, one elf, one dwarf, and one man. Boromir is at the Council of Elrond as the representative of men, of humanity. So he's our representative, right? And that's a sobering prospect, right? Because he's the one that, that, that would use the ring. Yeah, he's the one who breaks the fellowship. He breaks the fellowship. And that's, but, which yeah. is... That's kind of a that's that's a that's that's a hard thing to hear, right? That we are the problem. we all of a sudden discuss, we are the problem, that's right? right. Yeah. Wasn't it Chesterton who said that? What's wrong with the world? And you know, I am, I am exactly. So, so Boromir, uh, this kind of courageous, manly uh, character, in a way, is is us. Yeah, and but the thing is, the seductive power of of, of, mm-hmm. of, of the ring or of of, of sin. So he, he wants to use the ring to save his own people. Yes. Right. From an army led by a demon <laughs> that's basically made up, comprised mostly of orcs. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, Ronald Reagan said, yeah. you know, years ago about the Soviet Union, it was the evil empire, mm-hmm. which was true. But compared with Sauron's army of orcs, <laughs> you know, the Soviet Union is, 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 is child's play. So Boromir says, well, you know, the only hope we have in defeating Sauron is to use the ring. Right, it, it 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 it's a gift. He says it would be foolish not to use it. But the wise know that if you use evil means to a good end, you actually become evil. So even if the ring had been successful as a weapon in defeating Sauron, that 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 Gondor would itself then become an evil empire uh, under the power of the ring. It's better for Gondor to to be exterminated, to die heroically, and cease to be than to become an evil empire. Um, so Boromir doesn't understand that. Uh, although he dies heroically, he dies laying down his life for, for his friends. And actually, the form of the final dialogue between between uh, Aragorn and Boromir is the form of the sacrament of confession. So he actually makes a good confession. Aragorn now, in persona Christi, right, is it, 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 when he says, you know, I, I failed. No, you've won a great victory. You know, so he actually dies, he goes to heaven from a Christian theological perspective, right? Yeah, I heard somebody say that Boromir is a bit like uh, Dante's Purgatorio. Um, he's the purgatorial character. Uh, I like so that. If, if he's the purgatorial character who who falls and turns and through mercy and grace is forgiven, what about Gollum? Uh, Gollum seems to be the uh, non, somebody described it, Gollum as the infernal character. Yeah, I like this, actually. That's good. I hadn't thought about this before. Yeah, Gollum is the infernal character and um, Boromir is the purgatorial character. But before I mention, mm-hmm. before you go on to Gollum, okay. I'd also want to mention, I'm not going to say he's the paradisal or heavenly character, mm-hmm. but Tolkien also gives us Faramir. Yes. Now, yes. And Faramir is Boromir's brother. In other words, that Tolkien is making the connection so that mm-hmm. we can make the connection. And Faramir says that I would not pick up the ring of a sort lying at the side of the road. He also yeah. says mm-hmm. I would not snare even an orc with a falsehood. So not the smallest yeah. light of the mm-hmm. devil himself. So in Faramir, he shows us what we're yes. called to be, right? yeah. what we should be, mm-hmm. the saint, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Rather than the purgatorial figure who actually still dies a saint. Yeah. So you might be thinking now, okay, well, Tolkien's getting very easy on us, right? We'll either become Boromir's, who purgatorially end up in heaven, or we be Faramir's, who are saints who go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, we're getting off lightly here. But he yeah. gives us Gollum. 
And Gollum is also an everyman figure. Gollum is the one that shows us the consequences of choosing self-empowerment, choosing the ring over um, the moral law. Well, and um, so for listeners who haven't read the Lord of the Rings, um, can you tell us about Gollum, right? As a character, what's his background, right? What happens to him? What, what, what happens during the story? Yeah, so, so Gollum, eons back before the story begins, it was a hobbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he uh, acquires the, the ring by, through murder, murdering his friend, uh, and then becomes obsessed with the ring. So that, that obsession leads to possession. And, it, and the word possession here, is, is we, do, we should be seeing it in the demonic uh-huh. sense. And what, it, what specifically, what's the power that the ring gives Gollum? Well, it, 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 the, the, the literal power, it allows him to become invisible mm-hmm. when you put it on that. And as I said, that's because you are, you're leaving the good world, the world mm-hmm. sung into existence, uh, as we've discussed in the, in, in the other podcast. Um, but you you enter Sauron's world. You enter the demonic world. So the more mm-hmm. that you the more that you do that, the more you use the ring, mm-hmm. the more you're actually abusing your own goodness, truth, and beauty, and you shrink and you shrivel. And mm-hmm. I, for me, Gollum, who you know at the end of it, he's just this shrunken, shriveled, uh, pathetic figure, has destroyed himself through his desire for self empowerment the ring can give him. To me, he's one of the most realistic mm. characters. I mean, it, has, it, it holds up a mirror to the psychological reality of one who has basically become so addicted to his sin yeah. that he sold his soul to it. Yeah. And that's basically where Gollum is. And I like the verb uh, to Gollumize, that if, if, we, if mm. we choose a life of sin, we are Gollumizing ourselves. Yeah. So within the story uh, and within the character of Gollum and in The Lord of the Rings, uh, we discover, right, that Gollum was first Smeagol, the hobbit, and he becomes Gollum. But Tolkien does a very kind of strange thing throughout the story. Uh, Gollum is always talking to himself. Smeagol and Gollum are having this internal dialogue. Uh, what's the significance of that? Well, this is, again, it's just, this is uh, psychological realism that the, the sinner in moments of lucidity mm-hmm. uh, realizes that he, he, he sold himself to the worst half, the, the golem in himself, mm-hmm. and, the, and, and the pure, the childlike remnant of who that person is, the smegel, you know, is seeking mm. liberation from, from the golem myself. And, and, and what Tolkien does is through these dialogues, he shows that it's a battle. And, and, and you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says that the battle between good and evil takes place in every human heart. Mm-hmm. So all of us are having this dialogue all the time, mm-hmm. right? Between, between mm-hmm. the, 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 the saint we're called to be and, and, and the sinner that we're tempted to be. To be. And, and that mm-hmm. struggle is a real one. And I think that what Tolkien does is externalizes that through this inter, in, in, inner dialogue between the two sides of the mm-hmm. character of Gollum. Yeah. And in a way, then he's also kind of instructing us. Well, not instructing. He's just, he's just like, he's just painting a picture of reality. We have the choice to be instructed by it or not. Right. But by, by, by telling this story, it's, we also see that like reason alone can't save us because Smeagol at times knows what's happening. Uh, there's times where he even expresses love for Frodo, uh, love, um, uh, sort of, at least an appreciation. But it's like you can't think your way out of sin. Um, You have to act your way. And ultimately, that action has to be, right, um, uh, alleviated or uh, somehow helped by by grace. Um, But I think there's a profound, you know, I think in some ways, you know, if you think about Lewis and Tolkien growing up, 
uh, you know, being born at the end of the 1900s and, or sorry, at the end of the 1800s, 19th century, there was a little bit of the kind of Victorian uh, attempt to alleviate uh, kind of the misery of humanity by education. Uh, if, if we could alleviate ignorance and poverty, right, through education and employment or something, then people would become good. Yes. Uh, and obviously it's wonderful to alleviate, right, you know, uh, if, if you genuinely, authentically can without abusing people, alleviating poverty is a beautiful thing. But, um, but more importantly, in a way, is the fundamental merely knowledge will not conquer our broken wills. Our wills, in a way, are kind of and in Gollum. You see it. It's like uh, Augustine would describe it as the will is curved in on itself. Um, and when we're curved in on ourselves, you know that I, I can't. Knowledge isn't going to be helpful because the more knowledge I have, I can always just use as a further means to justify my hate and resentment. Right, and, and that's it, what you see happening. Eventually, the knowledge he has. Uh, right, Gollum is able to use that knowledge to justify his resentment and hatred. Yes, uh, he's a, he, he, he's not able to attain true, pure knowledge because he's so turned in upon himself. You know, obviously, to, to get to, to attain true knowledge is to become objective. Another to engage with that which is beyond the self. So the more that we golemize ourselves, the more that our knowledge is turned in upon itself, the more it becomes self-obsessive, mm -hmm. more we become possessed by the by, by, by the thing itself, by the ring, by the sin. And we're not actually able to acquire knowledge, even though we worship knowledge in the first place because we've made, made it as a tool of our pride. Mm -hmm. We're actually not even able to engage with objective mm -hmm. reality any longer. We've become complete slaves to the shrunken, shriveled self that we are. Mm -hmm. So when we're, if, if we have this sense of us as kind of possessing on our own terms parts of reality. Uh, so in a way, we're kind of trying to replace God with ourselves. Right. We're, uh, then we can't even really see the reality in front of us. So our knowledge becomes, in a way, broken. Yes, uh, and and you can see this in some ways because how do we understand the human person, right? To understand the human person, you can't just put the human person on a scale no. and see how much they weigh, no. right? You can't discover their value. You can't discover how you ought to treat them. You have to somehow learn that from a moral disposition to the world. Maybe just one more question before we break and kind of going deep into the certain sense of the perversity of the rational creature. Uh, and maybe after the break, we'll let's look at some of the uh, kind of hopeful uh, and kind of beautiful images along the way that uh, Lord of the Rings gives us. But could you say a little bit about Saruman, right? Saruman, who was Saruman the White, the head of the Council of the uh, Wizards. and uh, But one time he declares himself that he's uh, progressed and he's become Saruman the Many-Colored, right? He wants to use the ring maybe for himself. Uh, yeah, what, so what, he, what happens with Saruman? He takes the Nietzschean choice, right? He goes mm. beyond good and evil. Now, white is good, black is evil, the absence of the good, right? Um, but now he does. He, go, he goes beyond all of that. I'm, mm. I'm Saruman of many colors. I can choose what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. Mm -hmm. He takes that uh, Nietzschean approach. He becomes a radical relativist, in fact. And, and that's when um, Gandalf says to him that he who uh, breaks a thing... Um, Depart, yeah. depart, depart here it is here. Yeah. And he that breaks a thing to find out, or this is, sorry, this is where he says, um, I liked white better. 
And then Saruman responds, white? He sneered. It serves as a beginning. White cloth may be dyed. The white page may be overwritten. The white light can be broken. In which case, it is no longer white, said Gandalf. And he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. So uh, we'll let Gandalf have the final word, I think. That's great. That's great. So let's uh, take a we'll, we'll take a little break and then we'll come back. You're listening to the Catholic Theology Show presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now, let's get back to the show. So we've considered a few instances in which the ring, the desire for the ring, uh, becomes destructive. Uh, elements in which, uh, through different ways, uh, characters kind of uh, justify to themselves, they rationalize uh, this really descent into really evil. And, And in this case, in the story, not simply into evil in general, but ultimately into slavery uh, to uh, the ring, slavery to power, which is eventually going to become slavery to Sauron, right, in the story. Uh, Now, I wanted to turn a little bit and look at what are instances in which Tolkien, I think, also just so memorably presents uh, countless images of hope and of those who kind of journey along, um, even though they don't see the end. So I wanted to maybe uh, begin with, I think, one of the powerful things that, uh, right, the journey of the ring begins in a fellowship. Uh, We have stories of friendship, uh, the story of the friendship of Frodo and Sam. I want to talk a little bit about the story of the friendship of Merry and Pippin as well. Uh, and then one of the strangest friendships that is always astounding people in the story, this, the friendship of Legolas, the elf, and uh, Gimli, the dwarf. So could you say a little bit about why, uh, just maybe about friendship in The Lord of the Rings and why friendship is somehow, I mean, that's not accidental, that it's it's friendship somehow that works against the ring, works against sin. Yeah, so the, the 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 fact that at the Council of Elrond a fellowship is formed, mm-hmm. right? A fellowship and friendship. We we are uh, fellows traveling together with a common cause, a common on on a common quest for a common good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the way we will succeed in this is to sacrifice ourselves for each other. In other words, mm-hmm. lay 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 ourselves down for the fellowship as a whole, for the common good, and for each of us as individuals. And the fact that there are un, you know, that there the uh, there are the unlikes you mentioned, you know, Gimli and Legolas, we, we're representatives of people that are not the same. Uh, but we have to uh, transcend, overcome those differences, and in some cases, as the dwarves and the elves, historical enmities, in order to work for a common good against a common evil. And so there's there's a great there's a great lesson there. I would say as well, but because I can't resist, by the way, you know, I mentioned we mentioned the fact that that the ring is destroyed on March the twenty fifth. In the story, we're told that the Fellowship of the Ring leaves Rivendell in late December. 
in one of the appendices to the story, we're told it's actually December the 25th. So, so, so the journey of Frodo and Sam uh, from, from Rivendell to Golgotha to Mount Doom uh, is the life of Christ from birth to death. Uh, and uh, we do need to see Frodo in this sense as a Christ figure. And so the ring bearer, right, uh, is the one who carries the weight of sin without himself sinning. So the, the ring in this sense, when you're a ring bearer and, and not a ring wearer, you're a cross bearer, you're a cross carrier. So, so Frodo in many ways is, is someone who carries the cross for the fellowship and for all of us, the fellowship mm-hmm. representing us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that, that, that we see in, in, in Frodo both a Christ figure uh, but also an everyman figure because we're called, we're called by Christ to take yeah. up our own cross and follow yeah, him. Yeah, I love right? that image of uh, Frodo, the ring bearer, not the ring wearer. And uh, that is really uh, beautiful as he goes up the story. Now, it's also interesting that Gandalf says uh, at one point uh, that, um, that he should find, as he's going on this journey, that he should find a friend or that he can take someone. And at that point, we know that Sam Wise Gamgee has been listening over the hedge and he picks him up and pulls him in. And then a little bit later, we discover there's a chapter called A Conspiracy Unmasked. And it turns out that Merry and Pippin, other of his friends, have been for the past year observing him and realizing that he's going to try to go away. But they have this beautiful, there's this beautiful scene where he all of a sudden discovers that they've all been conspiring against him uh, to go away with him. Uh, and he says, Frodo says, right, but it does not seem that I can trust anyone. Sam looked at him unhappily. Well, it all depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone, to go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal of the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. So, so what's that image in a way of, of friendship that becomes almost like, so here's the natural friendship among the hobbits. We've seen the friendship of those who are called. Why is friendship the counterbalance to the ring? Because it's an expression of, of love, mm. and of course, love is uh, the antidote to sin. And again, it all comes down in the end of pride and humility. Humility mm. and love are inseparable. You can't love unless you have humility. So, humili- so basically, to love is to lay down your life self-sacrificially for others. Pride is, the, is laying down the life of others sacrificially to yourself. Mm-hmm. So love is the antidote to the poison of sin, to the poison of pride. So it's that fellowship, the fellowship of the ring, the fellowship mm-hmm. of the hobbits, Sam's love for Frodo. Yeah. You know, and, and, mm-hmm. and Tolkien says at various places, he says, I, I am in fact a hobbit. Uh, I mean, all but stature, right? Yeah, all but statues. <laughs> I like colorful, uh, colorful, I wear colorful waistcoats. I, uh, I, I like good plain food. Um, don't like traveling much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I am in fact a hobbit. But he also says about he based the relation the uh, the character of Sam on his personal servant in World War One. Mm-hmm. So every every officer above a certain rank had his own Batman. It's actually called a personal private soldier who's a servant. And so Tolkien had his own servant. And what he what he realized this man wasn't as educated as he was. Uh, he wasn't as articulate. 
but he was actually had more courage. He had more natural goodness. Mm-hmm. So uh, he bases Samwise Gamgee on that. So some, by extension, you can say that in some sense, Frodo is a Tolkien figure. But the point is that what Frodo's, what what Tolkien's showing us is that the more humble character, mm-hmm. Sam, mm-hmm. is actually the holier character. And it's only his courage uh, and, and holiness which brings Frodo through. Without that, he, he could do nothing. Yeah, and interestingly, it's Sam at one point uh, uh, has to put on the ring to save Frodo. He then carries the ring. He gives the ring up, one of the very few, along with Bilbo, to give the ring up. Uh, really, almost no one else uh, does in the story. Okay. And and then eventually, right, uh, as they're going up the mountain, he says, sorry, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. And he actually carries Frodo on that last stage and and the wording is beautiful because uh he's expecting to only be able to stagger a few yards and then collapse because mm-hmm. he's thinking he's weak for starters right yes. you have frodo's weight then you have the weight of the ring on top of that he thought this is one last heroic effort and then we'll both basically collapse and die mm-hmm. but then as he lifts up frodo yeah. uh he feels the burden to be miraculously light mm-hmm. that frodo weighs no more than a hobbit child playing piggyback you know, yeah. so so you have this this Christ promise to us, right? That if we take yeah. up our cross, He will help us yeah. carry it. That our burdens will become miraculously light if we have the courage to to bear them. Mm-hmm. And that we see that that's a, that's a miracle of grace. That moment in the story, mm-hmm. that's really uh, just you know beautiful. Uh, you know, thinking about that, and especially by that time in the story, they've been you know without food. Uh, they've been uh, barely drinking water. They're uh, at the utter utter limits. Uh, and, and in a certain sense, they only find that grace when they completely surrender, yes. right? It's this complete uh, surrender. Uh, and, and, and yet, right, Sam's able to uh, do this. So one of the fascinating things uh, that's in the story, which again is uh, maybe deeply Catholic, but also deeply weird, uh, is that like Frodo doesn't throw the ring away. Right at the very end, like all this beautiful stuff that we've been talking about friendship, we've been talking about the fellowship, we've been talking about Sam helping Frodo, right? At the pinnacle of everything, Frodo is standing over the fires of Mount Doom, right? Ready to cast in the ring, right? Uh, and I don't have it with me right now, but but basically, right, says, uh, it is mine. Mine is the word he uses, that meum right and he turns around he walks away from so right what's happening in the story what's happening in tolkien's worldview i'm so pleased you asked that because it really that's the crucial and even the word from the word crux as in cross mm-hmm. is the crucial moment yep. of, of the mm-hmm. story um so when we first read it i i suddenly when i'm teaching literature class and yeah. we first read a lot of the rings you know we when this moment happens, we're angry, right? We're angry with Frodo because he's let us down. He's betrayed us. You know, how dare he drag us for, you know, 800 pages, right? For this, for this act of betrayal, right? And then, and this is our first awareness, perhaps, of, of the difference between, you know, uh, uh, reading a work literally and beginning to see it literarily. We think, hang on for a second. It's not, uh, it's not Frodo's fault. Frodo has no choice. It's Tolkien's fault. Right, and then your anger's turned to the author. How dare you drag me for eight hundred pages for this? Right, because he could have done something, but he's made. So you're angry with him. But then you think, okay, well there must be a reason. 
And of course, out of nowhere, uh, Gollum appears, right? Uh, and it's the struggle uh, that the, with Gollum that the ring is destroyed against uh, Frodo's will. But what does this signify? What it signifies is that we cannot overcome the power of sin, the power of the ring, through the triumph of the will, right? We, we need some supernatural exi- assistance, right? Um, which you know, theologians call grace. That's supernatural assistance. So, but then you think, well, Gollum, grace, come on, that doesn't really work, does it? But then you think about the story. Towards the beginning of the story, you know, that, that Frodo says, I wish Uncle Bilbo had killed that miserable creature when he had the chance. It's a pity that he didn't. And Gandalf says, pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. And then later in the story, when, 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 when Frodo has the chance to kill Gollum uh, at the Forbidden Pool, he says, now I do see him, I do pity him. And Frodo stays his hand. And later in the story, Sam has the opportunity to kill Gollum, and Sam also pities him. So on three separate occasions, three separate hobbits have actually uh, done the most difficult of all the commandments that our Lord gives us, right? Not just to love our neighbor, which is difficult enough, but to love our enemy. So all three of them love their enemy, and and it's the reward for that act of love that he's still there. If any of them had killed him, Gollum would not have been there. The ring would not have been destroyed. So this was a reward, the supernatural assistance of, 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 from God, because Gander, Gollum's still there because of their acts of love towards their enemy earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and it shows, you know, that, that, that we cannot, none of us can defeat the power of the ring yeah. without supernatural mm-hmm. assistance. Mm-hmm. And in a way, what Tolkien's doing through the story is kind of, it's like, you, know, you were talking before about how we're Boromir. We're the, you know, we're we're really the fallen man in the story. We do we do it all over again because we believe in Sam and Frodo, and we believe in ourselves, and we believe that if we were up there, we would have thrown the ring in, you know, because we're you know we're identifying with the characters, and you're having that sense, and then Tolkien kind of puts up a little mirror. Right. right, that sense in which uh, the you know the fairy stories, as he describes it, can become a mirror to our reality. He puts a little mirror, and he says, "No, you would hold on to the ring. Yeah, yep. you know, you would hold on to the ring, and uh, that there's some sense in which, I mean, it's almost like it's not like we're bad, we're sick. Right, right. You know what I mean? It's like yes, we're also, but it's like we're you. We simply can't. We don't have the strength. Our will is too wounded." Um, by whatever this deep mystery of iniquity. Uh, and so by doing that, and, and of course, right, you see that, you begin to say, wait a second, what's the whole mystery of redemption? The mystery of redemption is when Jesus Christ dies on the cross and rises again and ascends into heaven, he offers himself out of love. But how does that happen? It happens through the hatred, the yep. resentment. Yep. Of, of Judas, right, the chief priest, the Romans, ultimately, right, the devil who is at work. And all of that hatred is what somehow brings about the defeat of sin yep. and hatred. Yep. So somehow in a way that's, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, it's like hard to even imagine the story then of Gollum being the one to take the ring from, uh, from Frodo uh, is somehow like, you know, uh, sin defeats itself. Exactly. It, and I said, it's like, it's kind of, it, it's really just awesome and, and wonderful when you begin to see the profound layers that uh, that in this entire, entire mythical world that Tolkien is describing, 
right? We see ourselves, we see the goodness of God, we see the goodness of mercy, right? All, all these different themes that come forward. And, and, you know, and, and it shows uh, the, you know, the words of St. John Paul II when he talks about a culture of death. Mm. The culture of death mm-hmm. is not merely deadly, it's suicidal. You know, the evil is self-defeating, as you say, and we see it in Gollum. We see it also in the fact that Sauron, in his pride, pays no heed to hobbits, right? The, the, the small and the humble, who cares? That's why he doesn't even know where the ring is for so long, because, of course, it's not going to be in some out of the, some village with little folk. It's going to be with the great, right? So he's looking in the wrong place because of his pride. He's looking in the wrong place, which allows Frodo and Sam to walk right in the very midst of, of his own evil kingdom, his, evil, his own evil empire. So, you know, pride, you know, Pride and prejudice, so Jane Austen puts those mm-hmm. two together. Pride pre- prevents us from seeing things objectively. It's our own weakness. And so ultimately, we don't have to defeat the power of evil, which is just as well because we can't. <laughs> but we, we just have to be true and ask for God's assistance and take up our crosses, asking him, him to help us carry them and let evil take care of itself, which is ultimately self-defeating. Yeah, and it, it, it's this sense of evil being self-defeating uh, there are a few instances uh, where where this comes up, but one that just always speaks to me is I think uh, Sam. This is in the end, like towards the end, in the darkness, the hopelessness of the journey. Uh, they don't have enough food. They don't have water to even get there. Let alone they know once they get there, they can't get out. Uh, and but he says he looks up and somewhere he sees a star, and he realizes that it's the shadow that has passed. And he he says something along those ideas that he realizes that. All shadows will pass. Actually, and, I, by, oh. by, by pure good fortune, I, I have this in front of me. Oh, I, well, please, please read so it. The epilogue of my book begins with these lines to which you are, I, I think you're referring. Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun, and stars forever dwell. Mm-hmm. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. Yeah. So, it, and I think that's partly why people love the book, is because you have such a profound uh, immersion in evil and loss. And there's no, like, there's no uh, sugarcoating uh, the wickedness and the horror and the death that comes through this. But at the same time, all of that is passing. Yep. The sun and the stars are greater than it. There was a, reminds me of the, uh, I think it was a saying or something that was like written or carved into one of the walls at, uh, in the, maybe it was at Auschwitz or uh, during uh, the Holocaust where it says something, I believe in the sun even when I cannot see it. Uh, or I believe in the sun even when the sun is not shining. I believe in God even when I cannot. But the sense that evil no matter is, like Lewis, so, Tolkien could take it very real. I mean, he take it in a very real sense. And yet at the same time, it's a hopeful story. Yeah, um, I mean, he experienced yeah. obviously the trench warfare, what he called yeah. the animal horror, the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. He's seen horrors mm-hmm. uh, that we can't even imagine. Yeah, you know, so he knows he knows the reality of evil. And he says, you know, that as a Christian, I see history as the long defeat, mm-hmm. with only occasional glimpses of final victory. In other words, in, in, Augustinian, in, a, in an Augustinian sense, you know, the city of man is always dominating uh, and the city of God is always uh, being dominated. Now, it's always being persecuted. The, the city of God is, a, is, a, is in a land of exile. It's in the Vale of Tears. Um, the, the, the ultimate city of God is the church triumphant. But here, 
is the church militant, the church at war in this long defeat of history where the city of man is always the dominant power. Yes, and so partly his work helps us to see the city of man at work, right? The city of kind of self um, absorption and uh, absorbing other selves. And yet at the same time, remind us that there is the city of God, right? That ultimately all of this came from a good God and we have the freedom of choice to choose with God's help to follow the path that will lead us. And so uh, maybe just last theme I wanted to ask a little bit about is, uh, Tolkien just says, uh, he talks about, again, it's it's the road that shows up a lot. Um, I think there's a line where he says, uh, Gandalf says something, but, um, or to him, uh, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step out onto the road. And if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to, right? Um, there's this uh, beautiful line too. The road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began, now far ahead, the road has gone. Let others follow if they can. Let them a journey new begin. But I at last with weary feet will turn toward the lighted end, my evening rest and sleep to meet. Uh, what is, like, so what is Tolkien trying to help us to see with this road? Uh, well, I mean, showing us ourselves, as he says mm-hmm. in, in, in his lecture on fairy stories, that the, the, the fairies are hard to mirror to man. So it's show, showing us, um, first of all, Anthropos, he who turns up in wonder, above all shadows rides the sun. We have yes. to be able to look up in wonder to be able to see the goodness that transcends and supersedes evil. But also we have to take the appointed journey, that life is a journey. It's not a stasis, it's action. So we haven't said anything about The Hobbit, but in actual fact, this is, you know, both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, you have to go on the quest. You have to leave the safety zone. You have to leave the shire. So, um, you know, it, it, The Hobbit in many ways is is a meditation on Matthew's gospel. Where you, your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So at the beginning of the story, you know, the, the Bilbo Baggins is surrounded by his own uh, dragon horde. He's possessed by his own possessions. He doesn't want to leave because he's got everything he needs, right? So uh, Gandalf says you have to go on the journey because it will be good for you dangerous but good for you right and so it's this is homo viator this is man on a journey or pilgrim man right man on a quest the quest for heaven we're all on a journey and 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 we're meant to take the appointed path and the enemy is homo superbus proud man so then again that battle that Gollum has you know that dialogue within between homo superbus the proud man who refuses the journey uh, refuses to self-sacrifice, uh, and and Homo Viato, or the man who takes the appointed journey and, and and slays dragons by the help of God on the way. Yeah, and I think that um, that theme of journey and the road, it's very interesting that uh, Tolkien does not see the road as a kind of fate. It's really the opposite of fatalism. And uh, I love this where uh, at the beginning of the story, but it really creates the whole thing. Is that it's it's we have the choice. Uh, I think Tolkien and Lewis, with so much of kind of modern philosophy falling into determinism, uh, whether or not that's of a scientific form or almost really of a social form, they really wanted to defend right the dignity of each individual person and the reality of free will. Right, it's not accidental that it's the ordinary people uh, that, that that make all the difference. But when he begins to hear this, Frodo says when he hears he learns about how. Right, how bad things are in the the Mordor. He says, "I wish it need not have happened in my time." Said Frodo. "So do I," said Gandalf. 
and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. Right? We don't get to decide our times or the road. Right? All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And already, Frodo, right, our time is beginning to look black. Right? So he sees that. But again, that is, it is for us to do to decide what to do with the time that is given us. It's for us to decide. In a way, there's a real kind of, I think it's partly why people love the story. Even if they're, the Catholic themes are kind of almost built into the very created order, uh, in some ways, you could say looking at reality is already a Catholic thing because as Catholics, right, we believe that creation already tells forth the glory of God. It's just that often we can't see it. Um, but this world, I think this idea of the, of, of the road as uh, kind of is that each of our lives, we have meaning and we can discover meaning when we, like Frodo, right, go on the road. And, and I think that's really a beautiful uh, theme. Are there any... Uh, I, Last, uh, maybe one last uh, encouragement for people who haven't uh, maybe yet been willing to pick up uh, the book. What might you say to well, encourage them? I, I would merely, merely say that where Tolkien is right when he says the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. It's one of the great works of Western civilization that's mm-hmm. profoundly religious and Catholic. Why would someone not want to uh-huh. take that adventure? And it is an adventure story with mm-hmm. a great deal of good, solid theology and philosophy in it. It's 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 Anyone who takes that journey with Tolkien and Frodo uh, is on a win-win situation. That's great. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Joseph. And uh, for people who are interested in uh, learning more, you can uh, find uh, Joseph Pierce's uh, website uh, at jpierce.co. And his book, Tolkien, Man and Myth, A Literary Life, uh, is published by Ignatius Press. Uh, So thank you, uh, Joseph, for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.